und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello there and greetings from City Breaks. Welcome to episode 6 of City Breaks Munich, which I'm thinking of as the Stadtmitte episode. Stadtmitte being the German for town centre. And for this episode, I'm going to collect together a few places that you'd perhaps visit if you decided to spend a morning just wandering around the very central part of Munich. So that would be places like the Marienplatz, the main square in the centre with its column and its old and new town halls. I'm going to include a clutch of inner city churches, the two well-known ones, the Peterskirche and the Frauenkirche, and two or three others which have got things of interest in various ways. And then to round off, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Englischer Garten. So picture, if you will, a map of central Munich. The Marienplatz is right in the centre, not too far from Marienplatz in any direction. There's a ring road on which you can see, if you look at a map, three traces of the original city wall, marked with the word Tor, T-O-R, which means gate. They were ancient gates on the city wall. They're all towards the south, Karl's Tor, the Zendlinger Tor. There's actually a tube station named after that, so that's quite easy to find. And then round to the east a bit, the Isar Tor, named, of course, after the river Isar. Well, everything I'm going to mention today, apart from the Englischer Garten, the English Garden, is within that inner ring. To the north of the Marienplatz, there's a place that we've talked about already, namely the Residence, and also the Opera House, something we'll come back to in the music episode. If you move round to the west a bit, you'll find the Frauenkirche, that's Munich's cathedral, called in English the Church of Our Lady, and the Michaelskirche, both of which are going to feature. Moving on down towards the south, you'll find the Peterskirche, all of this really not far at all from the square, and the Viktualienmarkt, or the food market, something I'm going to come back to in the episode on food and drink, so not particularly deal with today. Then if you keep going east, you'll find the Hofbräuhaus, also very central. We're not going to talk about that today. That fits nicely into the episode on Hitler's Munich, which is coming soon. And off further to the east, you've got the River Isar. Just to fix everything geographically in your mind, I'll make a quick mention of certain key features that you'll find outside that inner ring. So to the north, northeast, there's the English Garden. More directly north, the district of Schwabing, which is the university studenty bit of Munich. And then off to the northwest, the area with all the galleries, the Neue Pinakothek and the Alte Pinakothek and others, all of which we'll come back to in the artistic episode. So back then to the Marienplatz and let's make a start. The Marienplatz, the central dominant square in Munich, has its origins in the Salton Corn Market from medieval times. Today, it's dominated by the Marienzäule or the Mary Column. So a column built and named after the Virgin Mary, put up in 1638 during the reign of Maximilian I. It was his way of marking the end of the Thirty Year War giving thanks for the fact that Munich hadn't been occupied by the Swedish troops. As part of the Counter-Reformation, Munich was very much a Catholic city, and so this column is very much a Catholic triumphant symbol, a religious and political triumph had been achieved. Munich was going to continue to be Catholic, the Swedes had been got rid of, the victory column went up. The two most dominant buildings around the square are the Old Town Hall and the New Town Hall, the Altes Rathaus and the Neues Rathaus. The old town hall dates originally from 1470, but you're not really looking at very much of that anymore because it was seriously remodelled in the 19th century and had to be rebuilt after World War II when it had been very badly damaged. 
The most impressive thing inside the Altertracht House is the Festsaal, or the Banqueting Hall, full of a collection of heraldic arms, and the Tower. The Tower, known in German as the Talpuchtor, was also part of the old city gate originally. These days there are two reasons why you might look twice at the Altersrat House. One is the fact that on the top of the tower there is now a museum, the Spielzeugmuseum, the Toy Museum. A popular visit if you have any small people with you or if you're just a big kid yourself. And at the less lovely end of the spectrum, the other reason why people look twice at the Festsaal is because it was the scene in November 1938 of a very famous speech by Goebbels. News had come from Paris that one Ernst von Rahn, who worked at the German embassy in Paris, had been shot by a Jew. And Goebbels, exactly here in this room, made a violent speech calling for a pogrom, inciting people to burn Jewish buildings, synagogues and schools and businesses. And it's this speech which is thought to have unleashed the Kristallnacht, in which 90 people died and which is thought really to have been the beginning of the Holocaust. Turning to the Neuersrathaus, that's also a very impressive looking building, 330 feet high tower, full of statues of people like Bavarian dukes and electors and kings and saints and mythical figures. But in fact, it's not for those that it's best known. Its best known feature is what's known as the Glockenspieler, the clock tower on which is situated a set of dancing mechanical toys who come out to play several times a day, usually at 11 o'clock in the morning at midday and in summer also at 5pm. The rough guide entry I saw summed it up as a set of, quote, jerky musicians and jousting knights, and I did see another guidebook which claimed that scores of people gathered in the Marineplatz every day at the set times to watch this spectacle with bemusement because they didn't really understand what it was about. So let me help you with that. The Glockenspieler consists of 43 different bells and 32 figures, and the dance that they do lasts about somewhere between 12 and 15 minutes. They actually use various different tunes, so it depends which one they're playing at the time when you go to see it. And confusingly, there are actually two different things going on in the same place. So the top half is a set of dancers which were put up to celebrate the marriage of Duke Wilhelm V when he married somebody called Renata of Lothringen, or in English, Renata from Lorraine. This wedding took place in 1568. And if you're not quite sure which Wilhelm, Wilhelm V is, he's the one who founded the court brewery, which in German is called the Hofbräuerei. So you probably recognise that name. It's where we get Hofbräuhaus from today. So he did his bit to make Munich the city of beer that it is today. Anyway, when he married Renata, this mechanical toy was set up in honour of the happy couple. So there's a jousting contest being held. And if you look carefully, you'll see that there's a knight in white and blue. So he's Bavarian, those being the Bavarian colours. And he's fighting or jousting against a second knight dressed in red and white, which were the colours of Lorraine. And it will surprise nobody to find that this contest held every day in Munich is always but always won by the Bavarian knight. So that's the top half. And the bottom half is something called the Schäffler-Tanz, which means Dance of the Coopers. The original Cooper's dance was done by real people in this square in 1517 and they were celebrating the end of a particularly bad bout of the plague. They really thought that it left the city and they came out in numbers to dance. And the Duke of Bavaria at the time, one William IV, ordered that this dance should be reenacted every seven years during Fasching. So that's the carnival that takes place before Lent every year. And this has been done ever since. 
Here's an extract from the City Museum Guide on this very topic. Quote, Munich's Schaeffler-Tanz, or Cooper's Dance, is a tradesman's tradition that is deeply rooted in the consciousness of the city's inhabitants. Held on a set schedule once every seven years, anyone claiming to be a true native of Munich should have attended this spectacle on at least that many occasions. But if you're not there during Lent on the one year in seven when this is done, you can be assured that you won't miss out because the dance is reenacted every day by the mechanical puppets on the glockenspiel. So while you glance round the square at everybody else who's looking on in amusement, you can smugly think that you do know what you're watching. Top half, jousting ceremony for the wedding of Wilhelm V. Bottom half, reenactment of the dance to celebrate the end of the plague in 1517. Ganz einfach, dead easy. The other thing you may wish to have a quick look at regarding the Neues Rathaus, is a set of inscriptions just inside the main entrance. The most interesting one commemorates the liberation of the city from Nazism by American soldiers in 1945, and it reads as follows. Den Mitgliedern der US-Streitkräfte to the members of the US forces die München von der nationalsozialistischen Gewaltherrschaft befreiten who liberated Munich from the tyranny of National Socialism. And alongside that, there are crests of some of Munich's twin towns. That would be Edinburgh, Cincinnati, Harare, Kiev, Sapporo in Japan, Bordeaux and Verona. And plaques commemorating important things that have happened in Munich, for example, the Olympic Games in 1972 and the European Games in 2004. Very close to the town halls is where you'll find the medieval streets of Munich, a warren of really narrow little roads, representing the oldest part of the city. And one that's worth having a look for is called Burgstrasse, so Castle Street, in which you'll find at number five something called the Stadtschreiberhaus, which is Munich's oldest private house, dating from about 1550, and which you'll notice as soon as you see it. On its facade there are some beautiful Renaissance paintings. And then just along there in the same road at Burgstrasse 8, you'll find something called the Alter Hof, which was built in the 13th century as part of the Wittelsbach Castle. These days it's got a rather more prosaic use. It's the info point for the city centre, so the place where you can get maps and tourist guides and things. So, nearby I'm going to pick out five different churches which are all interesting, but which I didn't think warranted an episode in their own right. So I'm going to squash them all together here. Let's start with the Peterskirche, which is Munich's oldest church, St. Peter's. Built on the Petersbergel, which means Peter's Little Hill, the only part of central Munich that's remotely higher than anywhere else. The oldest parts of the church that you can see today date from 1368, but in fact they were built on the ruins of something built in the 11th century. So there's been a church on this site ever since then. And because it's so old, it's known to the people of Munich as Alter Peter, which means Old Peter. The top reason for visiting Alter Petel is probably to climb the tower, 300 or so steps, up to see what's commonly thought to be the best view in Munich, and where, on a, from where on a clear day you might be able to see up to 100 kilometres away and catch a view of the Alps and everything in between. Inside, there's artwork that doesn't disappoint. The Lonely Planet Guide called it a virtual textbook of art through the centuries. And here, from a book called 111 Places in Munich You Really Shouldn't Miss, is an explanation of why that is. Quote, 
It has been continually remodelled and expanded over the course of the centuries, and this explains the numerous architectural styles within the church. Today's appearance dates back to the Rococo remodelling carried out in the 18th century. The exterior represents the Renaissance period of the 14th century. Around the nave, there's a collection of frescoes which represent Munich. There's one on the Marienplatz, one on the Victualien Markt, so the food market, and another one showing the Rindermarkt, the cattle market. The tower, of course, is recognisable from across the city, the rest of the city being mainly low-rise buildings. And it's also the subject of a well-known Munich joke. So why, goes the question, does this tower have two clock faces? The answer, apparently first provided by a Munich comedian called Karl Valentin, is, quote, so that two people can look at the clock at the same time. Ho, ho. If the church, and particularly the tower, are very much the sights of Munich that people recognise, then the sound of the bells is always thought to be an audio representation of the city. They first rang out in medieval times, and they've been doing so ever since. There were eight bells, there are still seven of them in the tower, but the oldest one is now in a display case down at the foot of the tower. That's got its own name. It's called the Armazunder Glocke. Glocke is bell. Armazunder means poor sinner. And the poor sinner's bell used to ring out particularly on the days when there was going to be a public hanging. And the last thing I'm going to mention about the Peterskirche, which is something that any Münchner, any person from Munich will tell you, is that it does seem to have a habit of attracting thunderstorms and lightning. And over the centuries, the tower has repeatedly been struck by lightning. The main body of the church has been damaged by fire on a number of occasions. There's one other equally well-known church in Munich, and it has a number of names. It's sometimes called the Marienkirche, Mary's Church. It's also known as the Frauenkirche. Its proper title in German is the Dom zu unserer lieben Frau, so the cathedral, the church to our blessed lady. So it's very much the church of St. Mary. Guidebooks often talk about its twin pepper pot towers and say that they too are a symbol of Munich. In fact, if you see a sign outside the city telling you the distance into Munich city centre, it is actually measured to the north tower of the Frauenkirche. The Peterskirche was the oldest. This is Munich's largest church. It's claimed that if people stood up inside, you'd fit 20,000 in. I don't know if that can be right. Um, And it seats 400. It was begun in 1468 as a royal church for the Wittelsbach family. They envisaged worshipping there and being buried there. It didn't start life as a cathedral. A traveller passing through in 1492, who wrote down his thoughts described Munich as, quote, a noble city without a bishop. And it wasn't granted a bishop until 1821, at which point the Frauenkirche became a cathedral and became the seat of the archbishop. And the most famous archbishop of Munich is one Joseph Ratzinger, who was bishop there between 1977 and 1982 in the days before he became pope and was known after that as Pope Benedict XVI. Probably the most recognisable feature of the church are the twin towers. Our guidebooks might call them the pepperpot towers. In German, the towers are called the Zwiebeltürme, or the onion towers, because of their onion domes. The design for which came from a travel book for pilgrims, which was published in the 15th century, and which referred to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, which had that very distinctive shape. In Munich, it was first copied here on the Frauenkirche, but after that, in fact, it was copied again in quite a lot of churches throughout Bavaria. So if you leave Munich, you'll probably see more onion domes. 
Although, again, what you're looking at today isn't the original church, much of which was very badly damaged during World War II. And the restoration which was carried out after the war wasn't finished until 1994, so 50 years later. As for things inside which you might want to keep a lookout for, one is the tomb of the Holy Roman Emperor Ludwig IV of Bavaria. You find his black marble sarcophagus there, surrounded by statues of four kneeling knights. And you'll probably also see a cluster of people at the entrance, standing around looking at something called the Teufelstritt, which translates into English as the Devil's Footstep, and to which legends are attached. So it stems from the fact that in Baroque times, when the church was built, there would only be one window at the very end of the church, which the high altar would obscure. Legend has it that when the church was being built, the devil made a pact with the builder and said that there should be no windows in it, and the builder agreed, but then tricked him by putting one window in and building columns in such a way that if you stood at the door, and of course the devil wouldn't come any any further inside, you wouldn't be able to see it. It's said then that when the devil found out he'd been tricked, he stamped his foot furiously, which left the footprint that you can now see at the entrance to the church. It's also thought that he was still angry when he rushed outside, so he got an evil spirit to rage around the outside of the church, and people believe that because it is a notoriously windy little spot. So those are the two main churches in Munich, but I wanted to just devote a minute or two each to three other still fairly fantastic churches, but sort of down a rung perhaps, from the Marienkirche and the Peterskirche. And the first one is something called the Theatinerkirche in Odeonplatz. It's quite nice to relate that this was founded by the elector Ferdinand and his wife in 1662 as a gesture of thanks because they had finally given birth to a son, a long-awaited heir for the Bavarian crown, and they had this church built in recognition of their gratitude. It's quite different from many of Munich's other churches um, because its architect was an Italian, one Agostino Barelli, and it was built in high Baroque style and modelled on some of the Roman churches. I saw a comment on, I think it was TripAdvisor, where somebody said, everything about the church oozes Italian splendour, and sure enough, that is what you notice when you go. The outside, for a start, bright yellow rococo facade, gives it a sort of Mediterranean feel. And likewise, the interior is Baroque, Quite a new idea in southern Germany when it was put up, but something which had a lot of influence then on churches built in Bavaria after this one. And it's visited today mainly because there are a number of members of the Bavarian royal family, the Wittelsbach, buried in the crypt here. There's a small underground chapel which contains the tombs of King Maximilian II and his wife, Queen Marie, and quite a few other Wittelsbach family members from different generations. A different church, which is in the small but perfectly formed category, is the Assamkirche in the Zendlingerstrasse. It gets its name from the two brothers, Egid Assam and his brother Cosmas, who built it. They had a number of properties in a row on this road. They converted two of them into houses, one each for them to live in. They made their place of work out of the third. And then the fourth one was built, reconstructed to be the church and they were going to name after themselves the Assamkirche. They thought of it as being their personal place of worship and they had every intention of being buried in, the t- in their tomb under the chapel. It was so beautiful and people were so interested in it that a great clamour went up that it shouldn't be kept private and in the end they were forced to open it up to the public, which it has been ever since. It's tiny, just 22 metres long, but the very detailed decor is absolutely stunning. The Lonely Planet Guide, for example, describes it as, quote, a riot of rococo opulence. 
And the Eyewitness Guide points out that, quote, no surface is left unembellished. When you go in, you're really struck by the colour and the opulence. Although, in fact, if you look again, down below it is quite dark, and they did that by design. They wanted the bottom path section of the church to symbolise the suffering of the world. So that would contrast with the glorious illuminated ceiling paintings which are dedicated to God in eternity. When you first see it, you'll just be struck by the amazing colour, I think, the beauty. But the more you look, the more detail you notice. And just to end this section, I found a lovely quote on the Atlas Obscura website, which reads as follows, quote, Lurking among the gold, grinning cherubs, mosaics and frescoes is one particularly ominous sight. A gilded sculpture near the entrance portal shows a skeletal image of death with scissors about to cut through the life thread of a poor soul. And then lastly, I just wanted to end the section on churches with the Michaelskirche, which was built by Wilhelm V in the 16th century as part of the Counter-Reformation. When you go in, the first thing you probably notice is a massive bronze statue which shows an angel slaying a dragon. That is a symbol of Catholicism triumphing over Protestantism. So again, another reminder that Munich was a very Catholic city which fought hard for Catholicism during the period of the Counter-Reformation. It was a very expensively built church, said in fact to have bankrupted William V as he spent all his money on building it. It was said at the time to have been the largest Renaissance church north of the Alps, and everybody knows Renaissance churches don't come cheap, do they? But the reason why most people visit it today, if indeed they go at all, is because it's the place where Ludwig II is buried. As the Lonely Planet Guide puts it, quote, The church's dank crypt is the final resting place of the Mad King, whose humble tomb is usually covered in flowers. In 111 places in Munich that you shouldn't miss, the author Rudi Kalitka writes the following, quote, Many people in Munich don't know that their swan king is resting just beneath them when they are rushing down Neuhauserstrasse doing their shopping. And he describes the actual tomb as follows, quote, Ludwig's coffin is decorated with an oversized golden crown on a velvet cushion of stone and a tablet with roses dedicated to, quote, the most wonderful king. So visitors to Munich in search of Ludwig II will put the Michaelskirche on their list of places to visit, as well as all the places at Starnberg that we talked about before. I hope it's not too gory to tell you that although his body is here, his heart actually isn't. It was an old Bavarian tradition to remove the heart and that was put in a silver urn and sent to a different chapel, a chapel of mercy as it was called, the Gnadenkapelle, in Alttürting and that was buried alongside the heart of his father and grandfather. But here in this crypt, or as the Germans call it, the Fürstenkruft, remain Ludwig's body and the body of his brother Otto. So, so much for churches. There are, of course, a lot more churches in Munich than just those five. But if you want to do a cut-down tour, those are the ones that I would recommend. And lastly, just to finish this episode, I wanted to move away from churches, go north a little bit, to the Englischer Garten, or the English Garden, which is the city's park. A five-kilometre-long strip along the River Isar, which is, in fact, one of the largest city parks anywhere in Europe. It was landscaped in 1789 by one Benjamin Thompson, who ironically was American-born, not English. But the idea of creating a man-made place of relaxation, as opposed to just leaving a piece of land as it was, was really quite foreign in Germany in those days and was believed to have been thought of first in England, so that's why it became known as the Englischer Garten. 
Its other historical claim to fame is a rather gory one because it was the place where Unity Mitford shot herself. One of the very well-known Mitford sisters, Unity was the one who came to Germany. She was here in the late 1930s. She had quite a Hitler obsession. She met him several times, was very taken with his ideas. And when, in September 1939, war was declared between England and Germany, she just really couldn't bear the idea of her two favourite countries fighting each other, and so she shot herself. She was very badly maimed. A bullet that couldn't be removed was lodged in her brain. She lived for several years after that, and died of her injuries eventually, just after the war. The Englischer Garten is a lovely place to just wander, but if you would like one or two pointers as to things to look for, The first thing I'd mention, perhaps, would be the waterfall, which you might be surprised to see, because Munich is a very flat city. The Englischer Garten, in fact, is very flat. But when it was designed in the 18th century, that was very much the Romantic period, and it was decided that it would be a Romantic idea to have a waterfall. So a dam was built, huge pieces of stone and rock and boulders were found, and water from the river was diverted to flow over it. Here's the author of 111 Things in Munich You Shouldn't Miss on this topic. Quote, The elementary force of nature was artificially arranged, visually by the rushing stream washing through the immense mass of rocks and acoustically by the crashing, roaring sound of the waterfall. With a little imagination, the waterfall takes on the appearance of a stage of an open-air theatre in which, at any time, an actor dressed as Ludwig II might appear. Probably the best-known thing that visitors are attracted to in the English Garden is the Chinese Tower, the Pagoda. Five stories high, it was built in 1789, so the year the park was opened, at a time when Chinese culture was newly quite fashionable. It's thought that perhaps it was copied, or the idea was copied, from the fact that there was a pagoda in the Royal Botanical Gardens in London, and it was put up as a folly or an item of interest to attract visitors. This too had to be rebuilt after World War II, and if you go to visit it today, what you're most likely to notice is the enormous beer garden which surrounds it, in which there is space for 7,000 people to sit and drink. The pagoda is very visible in the middle of the park and surrounded by all these people, but in fact there's a second piece of Asian culture a bit more hidden away, and that's the Japanese tea house, surrounded by a little Japanese garden on a small island in one of the streams flowing through the park. It's much more recent than the pagoda. It was a gift to the city of Munich from Sapporo, its Japanese twin town. Of course, 1972 was Olympics year, and the Summer Olympics were held in Munich, and the Winter Olympics in Sapporo. So the two cities formed an alliance then. And when the Summer Games were held, that was the date when the tea house, or as it's called in Japanese, the Kansho-an, was given to the city as a gift. It was heralded as a sign of peace and a sign of international understanding. Traditional Japanese tea ceremonies are held there regularly. If you go inside, there's a little waiting room. Then there's the tea room proper, which is laid out with mats and scrolls of Japanese writing on the walls. And when a ceremony is held, a Japanese tea master prepares the tea and introduces the culture of tea drinking the Japanese way, tells you all about the philosophy. And once a year, on the third Sunday in July, there's an actual Japanese festival, the Japan Fest, as it's called, organised here by the German-Japanese Society and the Japanese Consul General in Munich. So that ends our tour of central Munich. There are an awful lot of places I haven't mentioned yet, and that's because most of them have either been mentioned already, somewhere like the Residence, which we devoted an episode to earlier on, and many other places which are coming in later episodes. 
places like the Hofbräuhaus and the Stadtmuseum, which are linked to Hitler. The Viktualienmarkt, the food market, there'll be a whole episode on food and drink, so we can talk about that then. Some of the big museums I can mention when we have the episode on art. And the synagogue, I'll be talking about that in an episode on Jewish Munich. So, we certainly haven't finished with central Munich, but I hope you've enjoyed this introduction to some aspects of it at least. And I hope too that you'll be able to join me next week for episode 7, when we're going to go back over the central part of the city with a different focus and think about the rise of Hitler and the places you can visit today which are associated with that and with wartime Munich. Until then, though, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank and to wish you goodbye in German. Auf Wiederhören.